<clears throat> Thank you, Mel. It's beautiful. I didn't know what they were going to do today. I was uh, not privy. I wasn't here yesterday during practice, was I? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's turn to the book of Ephesians. We're finishing up the first chapter. Ephesians, the first chapter, we're going to work on verse 19 today, 19 and 20, 21, 22, 23, 19 through the end, as we head back up, uh, we began at the high exalted part of this first part of this chapter, it began with God in heaven, right, um, before the foundations of the world, um, writing uh, down our names, uh, God knowing that we would be saved in Christ that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And that's a high mountain peak, right? But this first chapter, as it dips down to earth and it grabs us in our salvation as Christ came some 2,000 years ago and he was hung on that cross, that Roman tree for our sins, it goes back up to the exaltation of Christ towards the end of this chapter and his lordship over everything, including the church. It is such a beautiful chapter, and as we're nearing the ends of it here and nearing the lordship section of this, um, I just want you to see every bit of it uh, that Paul has for us and the Holy Spirit has for us. I've called this this morning Power on High because power on high is what we have as believers I want you guys to know that. I want you to be able to, to grab a hold of that, grasp that power on high and what that means, God's power towards us who believe. What does that mean? That's what we're going to work on a little bit this morning. So let's read this, this, this short section from 19 to the end of the, end of the chapter. We'll pray and we'll get started on this. And, and, and as we're doing that, you might be flipping over to Psalms 2 because we're going to spend most of our time there this morning backfilling this passage with what God's done in that power. Verse 19, chapter 1, the book of Ephesians, Paul writes, And what is the immeasurable greatness of the power of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's Jesus, beloved. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, God, has put all things under Christ's feet, and he has given him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. And we are the fullness of him who fills all. The church fills this world with the fullness of Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads before the maker of heaven and earth this morning, these precious words we meditate on them, Father. We say them over and over. We look up the Greek meaning of every word. But, Father, to fully realize and understand what you've done in Jesus Christ for the believer and the power that we have for victory in this place is an immense truth that deserves so much time in our lives. I'm afraid we get busy, Father. I'm afraid we have too much to do, and we lose out on this rich treasure that you have for us. Father, fill us with these truths here this morning. 
the truth of the lordship of your son Jesus, that your plan is in full swing, that nothing can stop it, that you're bringing all things together in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And the things we see around us, Father, are just things that are going by the wayside. Help us, Lord, to grab this. Use my words this morning. Go past my abilities. Work with the power of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of your people as they join together here this morning. Enliven them in these truths, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us here this morning as we start to ascend the end of this first chapter of Ephesians. I look forward to getting into the next section of it, but I also, this lordship section, as we work this apart, you know, I, I um, it is so easy to get bogged down in life here, paying bills, worrying about things we see on TV, worrying about world events, worrying about COVID. I had COVID last week. Oh, by the way, I got to tell you guys about having COVID last week. Listen to me. I had to suffer so greatly. <laughs> you guys laugh about that. Listen, my my temperature, I record these things because, number one, I grew up as an engineer, and number two, I have OCD, and it's just the way I live. So I record my my temperature, and I compare it to my wife's. Both times we had COVID, we had it at the same time. I don't know how that works out. It seems like we share it with one another. She always gets it first, and then I'm like two days late. But my temperature was exactly two full tenths of a degree higher on average than hers. I suffered mightily, folks. You know what she said when I brought this this salient fact to her? She looked at me, and almost, I think, it was a little disgust on her face. She said, well, I gave birth. I said, that's true. It's true a couple times. But she laid down the whole time. All 18 hours, sister? 18 hours, she laid on her back. Anyway, so I just wanted to tell you, I wanted to get that out of the way because uh, now we're back to normal, and I feel much better, and she'll let me live, I promise, because I, <coughs> I okay these jokes with her before I do this. I would not uh, suffer 30 years of marriage for anything different. Listen to me. Love is the greatest power. That's how I know that my wife still loves me. Love is the greatest power. That is what we shall endeavor uh, to accomplish a little bit this morning. And I, I may be a little rough with my words this morning, but work with me here. Uh, go through this passage, and we'll just spend a little time here because I want you to see what the Lord has given me this week. As we come to this text, uh, this part of this text, I'm reminded of the work we've done to reach this pinnacle. And I'm telling you that, you know, this may seem that we go through this at a slow pace, but as we reach each individual step in the pinnacle of, of the mountain that is the Lordship of Christ, Uh, it becomes richer and richer. There will be numerous reasons that flow out of this text to the importance of this truth, and that is Christ is Lord. And we'll see each one of those that the Lord lets us see. But this week, I want us to be content with understanding the motive of this great truth of Christ is Lord. And we ask ourselves, why did God make Christ Lord? It's out of love. It's out of love. Love conquers all. Love fulfills the the law is fulfilled in this, just this, to love one another, right? Love is the greatest commandment. It's love, God's motive for us and for his people and putting Christ to the exalted right hand is not only his glory, but it's his love for his redeemed people. Love, perhaps, 
perhaps, is the greatest force then on earth. In the book of Song of Solomon, and that's a book that we don't open very often. I mean, a, a preacher gets there once in a while during perhaps uh, a, a, a wedding vow or two. But we get this in the 8th chapter of the Song of Solomon, the 7th verse. It says this, very poignantly, it says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man would offer all that he has, all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. That's a monumental statement about the value of love. What it's saying is the greatest floods cannot stop it, and the greatest of fortunes cannot purchase it. Right? That's what God is saying about love. The greatest of floods cannot stop love, and the greatest of fortunes cannot purchase love, even a flood like we have going on out here in front of the church this morning. So what we find is that true love is not absent great power, or it's not truly love. I think this is a little bit of a view into the eternal, immutable characteristics of our holy God. And this brings us really squarely down to those immutable characteristics of God. His omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. You guys know what those are. God is omniscient. That means that he's all-knowing. God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's ever-present. But let us not forget what it says in John, 1 John chapter 4. God is love. God is love. And so his first two attributes and the final one that I want to look at a little further this morning. God's all-knowing, all-powerful, and Paul brings that front and center in this third, what is uh, truth of this passage. You remember those, don't you? I think it starts back there. Well, let's just go back and do just a little bit of review. This will only take 45 or 50 minutes, and we'll get on to the rest of the sermon for today. Let's start in verse 15. I don't want you to forget this section. This is so important. Listen, and I'll tie it together because I was out witnessing for a little while Saturday afternoon, and I ran into the same thing yesterday afternoon, I guess. I ran into the same thing that I always run into. People do not take God seriously. If they did, it would change their lives, beloved. God is worth more to your life than an hour each week. I promise you that. And that's what Paul is praying for. These new believers were converted, and he wants to make sure that they understand who God truly is. And I'm telling you, the more that you, I promise you this in Scripture, it doesn't matter what Tim Raymer promises. I am the preacher here at Park Bible, so it matters a little bit, right? But Scriptures promise that if the more time you will spend in seeking God, the more fruit that will give in your life. I promise the more pain it will push out of your life, the more of sins past stain it will push out of your life, the more fear it will push out of your life, the better you know God, the better you're going to be. I promise you. Verse 15, for this reason, Paul says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the saints. Now, those are two unmistakable things of people that have been truly converted in their hearts. They had faith in Jesus and they loved people at church. I don't know what it takes to love you people, but it takes Jesus, right? All right, that's what it takes for us to love the church. You can't say, I, I love Jesus and, and say, I can't stand to go to church. Bunch of hypocrites down there. We're all hypocrites. Paul understood that, that the faith in Christ was, was, was hand in hand in partnership with their love toward all the saints. This is not something that's natural in the man. This is something that Christ brings to the man. So Paul is beginning to pray. He says, I do not cease, verse 16, to give thanks for you, remembering, 
remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you'll have more knowledge of him. They had some knowledge. They had the knowledge of the gospel that converted their souls, but he wanted them not to be satisfied just with that. He knew that the rest of their life would be a test in understanding who God was more truly. Listen to me. I've said this over and over week after week. We cannot worship a false god. If we do, we are not worshiping the holy God. We cannot go to a church that says homosexual marriage is okay because they're worshiping a false god. We cannot go to a church that says abortion is okay because they are worshiping a false god. This is the very simple, practical reason Paul wanted them to have understanding and wisdom and revelation from the word of God so that they would know the heart of God so that they could worship truly God, right? And it was from that flowed these three uh, what statements. He says that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation of knowledge of him, verse 18, so that your eyes would be open and your hearts enlightened. Literally, that is saying from the Greek to, to a rough English translation is so that your soul will be full of that light because that's what it is. When you read scripture, you're bringing light into your soul. <laughs> you're pushing out dark. Dark can't be where light is. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and here's the, that, the three may knows, what you may knows, that you may know the hope, what is the hope to which you've been called, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. We worked on this too. And today, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places? That's power, isn't it? If you can raise somebody from the dead, you're a powerful person. I don't know anybody can do that. I know a lot of preachers that try to sell that, and they make a lot of money doing it. But I think if they could truly do it, wouldn't we take them down to the nearest children's hospital and have them raise all those kids from that? That is foolishness, folks. But what God is saying is that he raised his son Jesus from the dead and he seated him at the most heavenly, highest, exalted place where he is king of kings and lord of lords. And then he's placed him head over the church and he fills us and we fill the world with him. (laughs) It's a beautiful reciprocal thing that works. Paul wants these Ephesian believers to know God. So he asks in prayer for the spirit to work in them to reveal Wisdom and revelation. This is where the world makes its decision, beloved. Oh, my gosh. I, we, we live in a distracted world. Uh, we live in a world that does not pay attention. We live in a world that chooses not to know God. It's quintessentially they're putting their head in the sand so they won't have to make a decision about these things. The word of God, though, when somebody tells you about what, who God is, truly requires something from you. When you read your scriptures, it's going to require that you answer it. It's not going to let you walk away with a quiet, simple feeling. It's going to get down into uh, cut asunder to the joint and marrows. It's going to get in there where the ugly meets the good, and the good has not been more, where you're trying to hide from, oh, my. It gets in there, and it requires something of you. It defines truth, and they don't want a divine truth because that means they have to be accountable to the truth. Listen to me. Just define the noun God. Can you do that this morning? Just define the word God. We all grew up saying it, didn't we? What does the noun God mean? Look it up in the dictionary, and I will tell you, I will warn you, if you Google it, it's changed a little bit over the years. (laughs) 
It's changed to take a little bit of the teeth out of God. But it's very simply, the noun God means the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. If there's somebody that has more power, that one becomes God. This is the supreme being. This is the creator of the heavens and the earth, no less God. Strike fear in the heart of those who daily plot evil. But they look away, they will not be held accountable, and furthermore, these would deny God's power willingly, and they prey on those who are busy, those who don't take time to define the word well themselves, and not thinking about the ramifications of not doing so and how they live their life here. Beloved, mark this truth in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. There is something coming. Verses 30 and 31, chapter Acts 17 says this, The times of ignorance God has overlooked for now, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by, to all by raising him from the dead. We will be judged one day by the man who was raised from the dead and seated in the highest heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is at once, beloved the greatest act of God's power and God's love. Mingled here is the greatest act of God's power and God's love because it's God's power to to bring Jesus from the dead, but it's also God's power to raise him from the dead and give us hope of eternal life. It is within God's power to be the just and the justifier of those who had sinned against him. In other words, the only thing we have to fear is God himself. God is who we have to answer to. God is the coming one again that every person will answer to. And it is in that power that he has provided a way through his love that we can answer what he's going to ask us. And that is in the son, Jesus Christ. And that son being raised to the right hand. So what we see in God, we could talk this morning about God's creative powers and those are glorious. I had a gentleman this morning say something about creation, and I agree with him 100%. We have to get creation right. And one of the ways that culture chinks away at the sovereignty of God is by teaching evolution. God has created everything that exists, and as creator of everything that exists, beloved, my favorite question to ask young men when I see them is what it means to be, what does it mean to be a man? Because You cannot answer what it means to be a man or to be a woman until you know the God who created you and understand the purpose he's created you for and understand the mastery he has over that creation. He has full control over his creation, and we are part of that creation. So this is at once the greatest act of God's power and God's love mingled together. So I think the, the way, the aspect I wanted to look at, at God's power this morning was is that he is able to bring to pass everything that he has willed. Because it's in understanding that properly, uh, the proposition is this. God has the power to bring everything he wills to pass. This is the immeasurable greatness of his power. And I know you don't know everything I know this morning, so stick with me. We're going to get there. We live in a world that's full of despots. Right? Through, full of authoritarians, through of men who want to gain power over, over a people. History's tale is that of men who wanted power and could not attain it by just means. So to keep the resemblance and illusion of power, they oppressed and killed many people 
because it was not the power they had, but the fear that they would rule with. Yet though this is history's storyline, history also portrays another grand truth. All these rulers are dead. (laughs) They've all died and are now powerless. But God, who is all-powerful and can bring all of his will to pass in Christ, is the only ruler who can speak past the grave. Who can speak past the grave. God's word readily explains this phenomenon. That's why I want to go to Psalms chapter 2. If you have your Bible with you this morning, Let's look for a little while in Psalms chapter 2. It is in this psalm that I see and declare the great sovereignty of God. And it's going to be offensive to some of you this morning because I I doubt that many of you have heard and considered Psalms 2 with the way that it's written. So I want you to keep an open mind about that this morning as we go through it. I want you to see that it's God's holy word, and this is what he's doing in the world. And if we see it from his perspective looking down on us, all the time we look up, we see a world that's out of control and confusion and chaos, and we see people like Mao Zedong and Stalin and Hitler and World War I and World War II and Korea and uh, Vietnam and the Gulf War and the the, the uneasiness, all of it, all the world fighting against the world, right? The unrest is everywhere. God doesn't see it like that. See, he's still in heaven. He's still on the throne. And the praises are going up even at this very time this morning. In fact, Scripture tells us that as we come to him and worship, we join that heavenly choir this morning. We leave this chaotic world and join that heavenly choir because that is reality and this is not reality. (laughs) We've got to see it from God's perspective. So this is why I bring Psalms 2 to you this morning. Let's just read the first three verses with you. And I just want to make some comments as we go down through here this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Man, that sounds like culture here today, doesn't it? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. As I said, it's world history, even recent history. If you take the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, Mao Zedong, Stalin, Hitler, the world wars, the wars that we remember and have been through, the Gulf War, the unrest in China, the unrest in the Middle East, the number of people dead as these men vie for power, indelibly explains that the nations are raging and the people are plotting in vain, trying to vie for power against the holiness. And the, Listen, when I was a kid, this was back in the 19th century, right, 1980s, and some of you are going to testify to this. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you didn't have them out here. I don't know. But we used to have, um, I don't even remember what they call them now. We used to get under our desk because Russia was going to send nuclear weapons to the United States. I don't know what they call that. I don't, I don't know what you would call that and rightly come away with some semblance of, uh, of reality. Like my little school desk was going to save me from a Russian nuke rushing in. <laughs> to heat up the place. Listen, and in Missouri, we had ICBM missile silos, and them babies were tipped with nuclear warheads. And, I mean, I knew where all of them, they were all around us. We have Whiteman Air Force Base. They're just uh, 18 miles from where I grew up. And the threat of this was real. The chaos was real. It was Cold War, right? It was the time, uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, from Carter administration into Reagan's. And this was my reality, 
But this is still the reality today. Nations rage and people plot in vain. Why? Because the, 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 the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together. They want their own power. They want to vie for their own rule. They want to vie for what they want. They want to be their own gods. And in doing so, they push away the one true God. And they might be successful for a while. And they may make people fear like Hitler did for a while and cause wars for a while. The nations rage because the kings and rulers of the earth stand in opposition to God. They take counsel together against God and his laws and decrees for righteousness, not caring about the people they rule over, but the power they wield and self-glory they will seek to achieve. Ultimately, in the futility of denying God and his law, they seek and vie for power to make themselves their own God. They can fulfill all their heart's lustful desires for power and control. It's as old as creation itself. This want to be free from God and God's law and be our own God. It's the want for self-pleasure and the lust of it and the aggrandizement of the human ego above all else. Listen, it began before ages. Just flip over a few pages to Isaiah chapter 14. And I'll show you the first one that thought he could exalt himself above God. Isaiah chapter 14. I hear pages turning. That's cool. Let's start in verse 12. This is a story about Satan, by the way, about the devil, about the greatest angel that God had created that fell. Why did he fall? Same reason every man's fallen today. Verse 12, chapter 14, book of Isaiah, if you're there. How, are you, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I'm going to ascend above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north, all describing God's throne. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Verse 15 tells us the result of his heart's desires. No differently than all the kings and rulers of the earth that take counsel against the Lord. You see... All of their work will be ultimately in futility as the greatest angel that was ever created. We now know him as Satan. Verse 15, but you are brought down to the Sheol, to the dead, to the far reaches of that pit. Those who see you, stare at you, and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? That, by the way, should give you a little bit of an illustration of what you should think about Satan's power. Who did not let his prisoners go home? Verse 18, all the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. Hitler's in his tomb today. Mao's in his. Stalin. They all will answer to the God of heaven. That's giving you just a little bit of an insight. Back to chapter 2 of Psalms. Gives you just a little bit of an insight to God's power. Now let's look at what God might think about these nations raging and people plotting and kings and rulers setting themselves against the Lord. What does the Lord think about that? What does the Lord think about that? He's, do you see it there in verse 4, chapter 2? He who sits in the heavens laughs at them. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king. 
He is on Zion, my holy hill. These are exact same words that Paul's looking at in Ephesians 1, verse 20, when he says that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of power. This is Christ being put in the place that he has earned for the work that he has done. This is Christ receiving the crown of glory setting on Zion, his holy hill. This is God saying the work is done. It's already accomplished. You need not think about these rulers and people of the earth who sat and plotted against me. I'm in heaven today laughing at them. That's a little offensive, isn't it? I, I don't know why, but it really, God's sitting in heaven laughing at them? Why? Because his power is much more immense than their power. Listen to me, when we think about God's power, we think about it a little bit wrongly. We just tend to think that God has more power than all of our enemies, or God's power will outlast all of our enemies. And Paul describes this power in verse 19 as the immeasurable greatness of his power. And we have to understand that God's power is not like the rulers of the earth's power. His power is unlimited. It's not limited by anything. It is not as if God has more power than the wicked rulers and kings of the earth, and he outdoes them in the end. You know, it's not a Star Wars light versus dark type thing. It is not like his power can outlast them. It's nothing like this. God is not powerful. God is power. God does not merely possess power or have power. He is all-powerful. His power and his essence are one and the same, beloved. His essence is power. It is unlimited. It never tires. It is infinite, and it is dependent on anyone or anything. God can laugh because all of his plans that he has planned will come to pass just as he has planned them. And that's the central point of the book of Ephesians. You remember verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1? He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a what? As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's power extends even past evil in this world. He says this, that uh, he's exalted his king on Zion, his holy hill. And what has he done for that king? You see it there, 7, 8, and 9. He said, I'll tell of the decree that I've set. The Lord has said to me, you're all my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ is going to return. And though he died and went to heaven as a defeated, right, by death, he was exalted to heaven in heaven's highest places, and when he returns, he will be a defeating king. He will wipe out all evil and all death and all suffering. It will be no more, and there will be no power that can stand up to him, and he will stand up every man, every woman, and they will be brought out of the ground, Scripture tells us, and brought out of the sea, and they will be judged before the one who died and is now living forevermore. That's God's power, and it's yours in the church. I can't finish this without the forgiveness of the gospel. We see this here. Jesus earned those things. He 
earn those on behalf of the glory of God. It was the redemptive uh, covenant before the foundation of the world that was between him and the Father. The Father wanted to redeem a people. God was not caught off guard by your sin. The Father wanted to redeem a people special to him, his inheritance. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We are God's inheritance. We are his people. So he sent his son to die to earn that redemption on our behalf. And it was the work that Jesus did on Calvary. Beloved, if you've not considered what Jesus has done on Calvary, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is his paying for your sins. It is his opening a way that by faith you can be right with God, the God of all power. And he ends this psalm just thusly. Verse 10 and 11 and 12, he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Listen to me, God is a long-suffering God. That's what it said in Acts, remember? That he's been patiently waiting. He's overlooked the ignorance. Be warned, be wise. God is, listen, let's just go back to Egypt. God was going to deliver his people from Egypt, right? Why did it take ten plagues to get them out of there? You ever considered that? If God is as powerful God that I'm speaking to you of here, and he is, if he's created all the heavens and the earth, why did it take ten plagues? Why did he not just take those people and snatch them out from their slavery? That's right. Had a long-suffering heart. Each one of those ten plagues was another chance to see his goodness. He says here, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be wise. How could they be wise? They could turn to God. They could understand his rule, understand who he is, but they willingly turn against him. Be warned, rulers of the earth. All of scripture from front to back tell us of a God who's holy and a God who is just, a God who has power and a God who is loving. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That is the Christian's life, by the way, beloved, that we believe that God has saved us in his son, Jesus Christ, and we serve him, but we do so with fear and trembling before him because he is holy. Verse 12 says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way for his wrath. Listen, it's the same warning we're getting in the book of Acts that Paul gave to the Aragopagos in chapter 17. He said, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I would put it in these terms for today, for today's culture. Quit messing around with this. Pay attention. Get serious. Understand that God has power, that there's a coming judgment, and that his plans will come to pass, and that you fall somewhere on that list in Psalms 2, either on the sheep side or the goat side. He's either laughing at you or loving you through Jesus Christ. Proposition number two, this little verse in chapter 19 talks about the measurable greatness of his power, but then it says, towards us. That's where the love comes in. Because it's towards those he's saving. Christ is ours, beloved. His power, his forgiveness, his beauty, his fullness, his grace, his truth, his mercy, his eternal life. All of those things are for the church. 
All of those things are for the church. We serve a God of love who has the power to make his promises to the redeemed come true. God is love. Love is the greatest commandment, and it fulfills all the walls. So this is towards us who believe. This is where power and love meet this morning, beloved. I'm telling you the most evil thing that can be done is to tell someone you love them and make a promise that you know you cannot keep. Yet every despot, every false ruler, every evil man has done that. They've looked at the people they've ruled and they've said, I promise that we will do this. Hey, listen to it today. I promise I'll end racism. I promise I'll stop COVID. I promise I will bring back a woman's right to choose. He doesn't have the power to bring those things to pass. But he's making those promises so he can manipulate you for your vote. It's time and time again throughout history men have tried to do this to people they've ruled over. Quintessentially for me, it's a it's the evil trickery of a preacher who takes a handicapped person from birth and he, he tells them that if they just have enough faith or if they can just give enough money to the Lord that they'll be healed. And when that handicapped person is out of money and no longer useful to that preacher, he leaves him or her broken and hurt and all the more cynical about true healing. It's exploitation. It's using people. When you make promises based on power that you cannot deliver, that is one of the most evil things that you could do to a person. And this is exactly what wicked rulers do. They promise to end these things and to bring some peace, and they can't deliver on those promises. They promise equality. They can't deliver that. They promise that you can have your marriage laws and that two men can become one flesh, but you can't have that. Why? Why can't you have those things? Because you cannot enact laws that God calls evil. They promise that they will uphold the legality to murder babies in the womb, that a woman can be a man and a boy can be a girl, and this is sanity is the epitome of insanity, the height of stupidity and hubris for some believer to take in front of a holy, powerful God. But, beloved, scriptures are replete with the truth that none of God's promises fall to the ground. Everything that he has willed, he will bring to pass. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel have failed. All have come to pass. That's the promise that we have this morning as believers, beloved, is that every promise that God has made to us in scripture Every promise will come true in Jesus Christ. Every yes will be yes in Jesus Christ. There is no exceptions to that rule because God has the power and he has loved us enough that he has sent his son to die on our behalf so that those who believe in him, those who have faith in him can have eternal life and shall never die. God has promised. He's promised that he will supply every need, Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in his glory. Not only has he promised to supply every need, but to forgive every sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's also said, and he's promised, that you will never taste death. I know. It doesn't seem real. Truly, truly, Jesus says in John chapter 8, 
I say to you that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Let me say that one more time. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. But he goes further. The Jews said, well, yeah, you must have a demon speaking like that. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. God has the power to make those promises come true. And not only does he promise to supply every need, to forgive every sin, and to take care of man's greatest nemesis, death, he promises that everything here will work out for our good. Beloved, this is power, that he can take my son's drug addiction and work it out to the good. That he can take your hardship that you're going through and work it out to the good. That he can take the medical things that you're facing and work them out to your good. That he can take the abuse that you survived and work it out to your good. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God has the power to bring all his promises to pass. Just one quick illustration, I'll leave you alone. Saturday, as I said, I was out doing some, sharing the gospel some, and I, I love to do this. Beloved, I, listen, I, it was a busy day. I had some loose ends to cover here at the office. Uh, I believe Frank was doing some things over in the trustees. I stopped and talked to him for a minute. Had to be up to Philadelphia to the airport to pick up my sweet mom and my daughter and her husband. And, and you know, I had about an hour and a half, and I was just totally convicted that I needed to be standing out wall wall handing out tracks. I don't know, you know, maybe it's part of the fever from the sickness earlier the week prior, right? Maybe it's because my wife didn't take good enough care of me. But I, listen, I know exactly why it was because I met three young men. One of them, his name was Darren. Uh, and I spoke with him, and, and um, Darren is like every other, you know, 28, 29-year-old young man. He's so busy with life, but Darren had had some religion earlier in his life, and I, I didn't have a lot of time to spend with him, and people are sometimes saying they're busy, but he came up to me. He said, I know what you're doing here. I've been to church. <laughs> I said, no kidding, man. I said, do you know what I'm going to ask? He said, no, but give it to me because I want to talk to you about it. And I said, oh, what does it mean to be a man? And we talked about those things for a minute. I, 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 I warn every young man. I said, you know, this is a question I get you with because this takes the rest of your life to answer. But I said, what I'm looking for and what this church is looking for is young men who are willing to slay dragons. Young men who are willing to stand up to pornography. Young men who are willing to stand up to the culture and say, enough of this insanity uh, with the sexes. Young men who are willing to, to be fathers and take care of their family and go through the tough times with their wife and the kids. We need young men. We need men of all stripes that are willing to do that. We need good men and women at Park Bible Baptist Church. Come fight this fight with us. You know why I say that? It's not because I'm crazy. It's because I believe it. I believe that God has the power to change the culture in which we live. Or I wouldn't have left Missouri to come here. I believe it. I believe every word of it. I believe God wants to do it. And I believe he's just waiting for the people to stand up and go do it. The question is, young man, will you be that person? Will you live a life separate from the world? 
Will you pay attention to what God has to say so you're not standing in opposition? You know, that's the biggest problem. They don't take the time to see who God is. Will you do those things? And if you do, God will bless you in those promises. Call me naive. You can call me whatever you want. Call me a fool. But you will never call me as somebody that does not believe the promises of God. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to a close this morning. Your beautiful word says these. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And the more we understand the scripture, Father, the more we see of your great love by which you've loved us with, the power that you've used to bring to pass all of the promises by bringing your son out of heaven, slaying him there on a cross some 2,000 years ago. Father, all of the power that brought that to pass was because of the great love you had for us as sinners. My prayer is that each person will spend time thinking about what you've done and who you are and give you glory for you are all worthy of everything we can bring. Go with us, Father. Bless us. Use us mightily. Bend us, break us, use us in your service, Father. Make Park Bible Baptist Church a light, not only to this small community here, but to the larger surrounding South Jersey area that so desperately needs the God of the Bible. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise, honor, and glory. For it's yours and do you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we move to our Lord's table, I'll ask the men.